Have you ever felt that some Bible studies are too much? You know, they're too long, they're too deep, they're too serious, they're too theological, and yeah, maybe they're too boring. <laughs> well, we're going to try to remedy that with this podcast, the Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study. We're going to take a close look at Scripture. We're going to look at the cellular base of what God was saying through His Word. But we're not going to make it too much of anything. We're going to try to make it just right for everything. When we find Mary Magdalene at the empty tomb on resurrection morning, we find an interesting conversation between she and Jesus. Uh, She wants to hold him. She wants to touch him. She wants to hug him. And yet Jesus says that she should not do that. He says that he has to ascend to his father first. And uh, that's an interesting interaction between the two of them. And the question is, why was that necessary? Why was it necessary for Jesus to ascend to his father before Mary could touch him or hold him? Well, we're going to hear in this episode of Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study from a handful of experts and hear what they have to say about that subject. And maybe we'll learn a little bit about it uh, for ourselves as well. Okay, so uh, we are going to look into our Mary Magdalene uh, episode again from John chapter 20. And you guys gave me a homework assignment last week uh, because we had some really great discussion last week about what this whole interaction is between Jesus and Mary Magdalene at the tomb when he says to her, you know, do not hold on to me, uh, I have yet I have yet to ascend to my Father. And we had some discussion last week about, um, you know, did Mary hold him? How did she hold him? What did that mean? Uh, what, did, what did that mean? And uh, I think it was Dennis that said, uh, why did Jesus need to ascend to heaven at that point anyway? What? Why did he? Why was that something he needed to do? So let's look at that passage and let's see if we can uh, come up with some answers today for some of those questions. So let's just start at um, verse fifteen. Let's start at verse. Uh, what is that? Verse thirteen. So this is the angels talking to Mary. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? In verse 13, and she says, they have taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? 
Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. We also know it means master, master teacher. Then verse 17, this is where we got into our good discussion last week. Verse 17, Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. So verse 17, uh, Jesus said, Do not hold on to me. And uh, we talked about how... um, you know, she thinks Jesus is dead. She's convinced that he's dead. She knows that he's dead. She's convinced that he's dead. And she is unconvinced even when the angels are, she sees angels. She still thinks she's dead. She sees the garden. Jesus thinks she sees the gardener. She still thinks that Jesus is dead. And then all of a sudden, Jesus ain't dead. And just the overwhelming emotions that she had. Uh, you know, you you can, it's probably hard to even appreciate how she felt at that moment, but her reaction was to approach him. And because who wouldn't, right? <laughs> I mean, uh, this reminds me of um, a little bit of a story that when I was at uh, Matt Washington Baptist, I did a story, I, I did a, a thing one time where I interviewed I think David did it too. Uh, some World War II veterans who were in our church, and I never will forget the story of uh, Barney. And he was served in the Pacific uh, during the war, and he he's from West Virginia, from my town, from my hometown, Charleston, West Virginia. And he spent like two years in the Pacific, not coming home, not seeing his family, and that. <laughs> So when the war is over, the way you got to come back home, at least from the Pacific, probably from Europe too, was on a, you know, like seniority basis or whatever. But you didn't really know, you, you couldn't specify exactly when you'd be back home. It just depended on when you got called and when you could get a, a boat and when you get on a train. And so it was just kind of always left up in the, you didn't really, you didn't really write home and say, I'm going to be home on Tuesday, you know? But of course, all the servicemen were coming home at that time. And so all of the ships were crowded and all of the trains were crowded and all of the everything. And where people were going, like at the train stations, they were all crowded because, you know, people were there picking up people or whatever. So he says to me, like, all this goes through and I get into the train station in Charleston, which I know the train station is a very small little train station. And he says it was just packed with people. And I got off the train and I go out to get a taxi to go home and I reach down to, and I'm just putting my stuff in, in the, in the taxi and I'm getting ready to open the door and, and open, you know, have the handle and open the door. And another hand kind of reaches for the handle at the same time. And I look up, it's my dad. Yeah. He says, how, how did you know I was going to be coming home today? His dad said, I just knew. (laughs) You can imagine, you know, that kind of homecoming. So this, to me, is kind of the way that Mary was feeling at this time. So her reaction is, I, I want to hug him. I want to hold on to him. And we talked about how in the Greek original language, the word hold there, hold on to, the way it's translated in the NIV, 
this is the definition. That word in Greek refers to handling of an object a per, or a person as to exert a modifying influence on it or upon oneself or touching for the purpose of manipulating. It implies a certain degree of involvement with the person, so it's with involvement with Jesus, on the part of the subject, Mary. More than It's more than mere contact or touch, but an engagement, a handling, or use in which some kind of influence or effect is created between the people coming into contact with one another. So I said, to me, that's a description of a great big bear hug. That she was just giving Jesus this great big bear hug. Uh, and, and, and that is why Jesus is saying, and we also talked about how other translations of that word hold on to were to attach oneself to, to fasten oneself to, to adhere to, to cling to, to assail someone. And some of your translations actually had said, don't hold on to me, you had don't cling to me, is what Jesus said. But some of you, you know, said, well, I don't think that was right, Greg. I think you're wrong, which is fine. That's great. Because we all, this is something, you know, when you read scripture, sometimes you need to wrestle with it and decide what do you really believe happened. And uh, I and, and I think, Jeff, it might have been you who said, your, 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 your image is maybe of Mary uh, uh, falling to her face and like clinging around his feet like the other women had done, uh, or someone said that uh, last week, that that is what they thought he, that she was holding onto his, his feet, kind of at his, at his, falling on her face and doing that, kind of in a, in more of a worship kind of a posture. Then he couldn't get away from her that way, right? Yeah, exactly. And uh, I, I know, uh, Grady, you said that one of the reasons that she was holding on to him was so that he wouldn't leave her at that point, that that was just... She was, she was so happy to see him that she didn't want him to leave again, you know, that kind of thing. And Stan said that uh, he thought that part of what Jesus was saying to her was that the relationship they had now had changed, where it had been kind of a relationship of uh, a physical relationship in terms of person to person who's present with you. Now it's going to be a relationship where I'm not with you that way. I'm no longer here physically to have a relationship with you, so don't hold on to me because that relationship has changed and now we have a different kind of relationship where I'm not going to be here physically with you present. So those are kind of the three, the three uh, things that we talked about last week. So I decided let's go and find out what the experts have to say. So I have here uh, four different, actually five different people who are um, experts in um, preaching, teaching, theology, what have you. And I thought, here, I want to give you, I want to give you an idea for the way that these things can happen when we get into a scripture passage where we don't have all the answers. We don't we have what Jesus said, what she said, but we don't know physically what happened between them, if anything. So here's Chuck Swindoll. You ever heard of Chuck Swindoll? Okay, famous pastor, preacher, right? Chuck Swindoll says this. The meaning of Jesus' words here is not immediately obvious, mostly because older translations have created undue confusion. 
The old King James Version, touch me not, was not helpful. The NASB more accurately renders the present tense imperative command. So we're getting into Greek grammar now. It's a present tense imperative command. And it means, quote, stop clinging to me, unquote. Mary felt so overwhelmed with relief, supposing she had her Lord back in the same manner as before, that she embraced him and held on as though letting go would cause her to lose him again. So it kind of goes into what you said, Grady. And, and here what Chuck Swindoll is kind of agreeing with what I've said. And she says, he says, she embraced him and held on. That's a bear hug. You embrace someone, you hold on, that's a bear hug. He goes on to say, Jesus assured Mary that she would see him again as he had not yet ascended to the Father. He instructed her to give the same message to his, to his other followers. His message confirmed two truths. First, his physical presence on earth was temporary. Before long, he would ascend to take his place in glory. Second, his relationship with his followers would then change. Mary's physical clinging would have to give away to another kind of bond, a relationship of faith. So that's kind of what Stan said, right? That part of this is that there's a change in our relationship. So you can no longer hold on to me in that way. Uh, our relationship is not going to be physically present, but uh, present as I'm in heaven. Okay. So that's Chuck Swindoll. I was really happy that Chuck Swindoll agreed with me. Okay. But now we have John MacArthur. You ever heard of John MacArthur? Another famous pastor or preacher, right? So John MacArthur says this, Overcome with a profound mix of joy and relief, Mary fell at his feet. Like the other women had done, she clung to Jesus, prompting him to say to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Having found him again beyond her wildest, having found him again beyond her wildest hopes, she did not want to lose him. Her physical grasp symbolized her desire to secure his presence permanently. Great, that's what you said. But he would be physically present for only a brief time, 40 days, after which he would ascend to the Father. So now John MacArthur does not agree with me. John MacArthur agrees with those of you who said, as Jan says, she feels what happened, is that Mary fell to his feet, fell at his feet, and grabbed him around his feet like the other women had done. So Chuck Swindoll and John MacArthur disagree about this. What? How can two famous pastors and preachers not see it the same way? <sighs> okay. I know I have to say embrace with me, embracing the speed. Yeah. No, embracing means hug. You're not going to talk me out of that. I'm going to stand. I'm going to die on that hill. Okay. <laughs> me when I would do either in terms of it there. Yeah. There you go. Either one is fine. Okay, well now we go to Matthew Henry. You ever heard of Matthew Henry? Probably not. Matthew Henry was a famous pastor a hundred years ago, okay? But he wrote a very uh, a very important commentary on the whole Bible. So here's what Matthew Henry says. He says, Jesus diverts her from the expectation and you notice in his language, it's, it's older English, right? So he says, Jesus diverts her from the expectation of familiar society and conversation with him at this time. Mary was so transported with the sight of her dear master that she forgot herself and that state of glory into which he was now entering. 
and was ready to express her joy by affectionate embraces of him, which Christ here forbids at this time. Touch me not, touch me not thus at all, for I am to ascend to heaven. So what he's saying here is that she didn't touch him at all. This is his take. He goes on to say, Mary, supposing that he was risen as Lazarus was, to live among them constantly and converse with them freely as he, Lazarus, had done, upon that presumption, was about to take hold of Jesus' hand with her usual freedom. So he says, she didn't touch him at all, but what she was going to do, if she had done anything, what she intended to do was to hold his hand. He goes on to say, this mistake Christ rectified. She must believe him and adore him as exalted, but must not expect to be familiar with him as formerly. He forbids her to dote upon his bodily presence, to set her heart on this, or expect its continuance, and leads her to the spiritual converse and communion, which she should have with him after he was ascended to his father. For the greatest joy of his resurrection was that it was a step towards his ascension. So Matthew Henry says here that she didn't touch him at all, that she intended to touch him, that she was going to touch him. But in Matthew Henry's way of thinking, like as she approached him, Jesus said, whoa, back up. <laughs> Don't hold on to me. And even if she had held on him, she, he, she was just going for a hand, for a handhold. So it makes the most sense at all. Yeah. Because it doesn't say in here that she actually touched him. Yeah, except that if you if you go by that John's chose a specific Greek word to mean a specific thing, that he chose that particular Greek word, which means that there was obvious touching. But but I'm okay. You know, another commentator said, well, look, who agrees with, with Matthew Henry? He says, look at verse 18. So look at verse 18. Verse 18 says, Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have what? Seen the Lord. So this person says that he agrees with Matthew Henry because she says she saw him. She, it doesn't say she touched him, I held him, I anything that anything physical. We have all the things she chose to say to them. She says, I have seen him. And his thinking is that that's evidence that she did not touch him or hold him at all. That was her intention. That was her intention. She was going to do it. If he hadn't stopped her, that's what was going to happen. Yeah. Okay. I understand. So now we have one famous pastor saying it's a bear hug. One famous pastor saying it was falling at his feet and holding his feet. And another famous pastor saying none of that happened. He didn't touch her at all. Well, no wonder it's hard to keep. Okay, so William Barclay, ever heard of William Barclay? Another famous commentator on the Bible. He was from England. I think, I think William Barclay was an old curmudgeon. I just think, as I read his commentary, commentaries, he just like, I don't know, he just strikes me as this like old man curmudgeon kind of guy. But here's what William Barclay says. <laughs> he says, even the form of John's statement is difficult. He makes Jesus say, do not hold on to me because I have not yet ascended to the Father. As if to say that he could be touched after he had ascended. No explanation of this is fully satisfying. The whole matter has been given a spiritual significance. 
It has been argued that the only real contact with Jesus does in fact come after his ascension, that it is not the physical touch of hand-to-hand that is important, but the contact which comes through faith with the risen and ever-living Lord. That is certainly true and precious. It's so precious. That is certainly true and precious, but it does not seem to be the meaning of the passage here. So he's disagreeing with everything that Matthew Henry said and that you know, all, all, Charles Chuck Swindoll said. He's disagreeing with all of that. He says, and here, here he gets back to the point I was making. He says the Greek imperative is a present imperative. Okay, it gets back to the Greek grammar. He says the Greek imperative is a present imperative and strictly speaking ought to mean, quote, stop touching me, unquote. It may be that Jesus was saying to Mary, don't go on clutching me selfishly to yourself. In a short time, I am going back to my father. I want to meet my disciples as often as possible before them. Go and tell them the good news that none of the time, go and tell them the good news that none of the time that we and they should have together may be wasted. That would make excellent sense. And that, in fact, is what Mary did. So. <laughs> Right, we knew all we had. We in one class we had all of those answers. <laughs> in one class we had all of those answers. So the point is, you know, when 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 really smart, well-educated, famous theologians and pastors and preachers all have a different understanding of what probably happened here, it's okay for us. To have different, and that's the beauty of some of the of the things in Scripture that we have, where we don't have exactly, and 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 God has left this open so we can talk about it and we can wrestle with it and we can struggle with it. Because guess what? Coming out of this, don't you have a much better appreciation of whatever happened? That this is much more illustrative now to you that it was something so meaningful. And if you just read past it and don't deal with it and don't wrestle with it, it doesn't mean nearly as much as if you do. So sometimes the Bible is open-ended to give us a chance to kind of put our own interpretation in there and study, not just to helter-skelter say, I believe this, but to really think, well, I believe this, and here's why I believe this. That's why I think this. And then it means a lot more to you personally. So now the one thing that we haven't done yet is we haven't answered Dennis's question last week, which is, why did Jesus have to ascend to heaven at this point at all? What was he, you know, what, what, why was this something that he had to do that had to be done? So I told uh, Dennis last week that it was something that, I don't remember exactly the answer to that, but it has something to do with an Old Testament uh, prophecy or an Old Testament passage. And in my study this week, that was right to a point, but it was it was more limiting because uh, the answer is is broader than that. The, the answer is that it has to do with, and if you remember from our study with the Feast of the Lord, it all has to do with the sacrificial system of the Old Testament and how Jesus fulfilled that. It has to do with the sacrifice that the high priest made on the Day of Atonement were the sin of the people, uh, the people of God. It has to do with the fact that there was uh, an animal whose shed blood was uh, uh, gave atonement to the people of God for that for that for that time, and how uh, 
as the high priest had to go into the Holy of Holies and be present before God with this sacrifice, with this blood of the animal. So Jesus, as our high priest, had to go to heaven to present himself as the sacrifice before God. So here's here's the, the best way you can that uh, you can understand what we're talking about here is go to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 9, because the writer of Hebrews gives us in chapter 9 and 10 here kind of the exact, the exact thing that we're talking about in terms of why Jesus had to ascend to heaven in his glorified body. Remember here, this is resurrection morning, resurrection Sunday. He's just now revealing himself in his resurrected, glorified body uh, before people, and first first to Mary. So uh, he has not yet ascended to heaven in his glorified, resurrected body yet. And so let's go to uh, Hebrews 9, and uh, we'll go to verse 1. And uh, the writer of Hebrews says, 9, 1. Now the first covenant, which is the Old Testament covenant of Moses, now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In his first room were the lampstand, the table, and the consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered ark of the covenant. This ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. In other words, we've got other things to talk about. Verse 6. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, the most holy place, and that only once a year on the Day of Atonement. And never without blood, never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. So that's what the Old Testament sacrificial system started in the tabernacle, and that's what we studied when we studied uh, all the feasts of the Lord. Okay, so let's skip over to verse 11. The blood of Christ is what my title is in verse 11. It says, When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctified them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then would the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciousnesses, consciences of acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, verse uh, 15. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, 
that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Okay, so that is so. There we have the first section was the old covenant through the sacrificial system of the Day of Atonement and so forth. And then the second part we just read is how Jesus was the fulfillment of that and the better part of that and the perfect part of that, that he himself sacrificed himself and his blood now gives us atonement. So let's go down then to verse 23. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices. That means the Old, the old Testament way and, and the things that they did then. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered the true one. He entered heaven itself. Now to appear for us in God's presence. That's, that's the important part there. He entered heaven itself which is the perfect uh, sanctuary, not a man-made sanctuary. Why? To appear for us in God's presence. Why did Jesus have to ascend in his glorified body when he was talking to Mary? He said, I have to go do that. Because he had to appear for us in God's presence as our sacrifice for our sins. Just like the High priests had to appear in a specific place, the most holy place, with blood, the blood of the sacrifice, for atonement of the people. So Jesus had to appear before God in the perfect most holy place in heaven to present himself as the sacrifice for God's people from that point forward. It's kind of an important thing that he went to heaven, isn't it? Kind of have to do that. So let's go on. Verse 25. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again. The way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood that is not his own. Then Christ would have had to, if if Jesus had to do what what the high priest did, verse 26 says, then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now, that's not necessary because why? What has he done? He has appeared. He has appeared. He has gone to God's presence. He has appeared once for all in heaven at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as a man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. So this is the answer to the question of why did Jesus need to ascend at all? He needed to ascend to present himself as the sacrifice for sin, he had to go and present his the blood that he sacrificed, that he uh, you know uh, spilled on our behalf before God. Uh, he had the blood had to, as the high priest had to take blood into the most holy place. So Jesus had to take his sacrificial blood to heaven as our sacrifice. So let's go to verse eleven. Uh, I'm sorry, chapter ten, verse eleven. Chapter ten, verse eleven. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when the priest had offered, but when this priest, when this priest, Jesus, but when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Okay, so 
this is what Jesus did, and this is why he had to do it. So I found a uh, I found um, another famous uh, commentator on the Bible named J. Vernon McGee. You ever heard of J. Vernon McGee? We love J. Vernon McGee, don't we? Through the Bible. So, mm-hmm. comment before you get yeah. to that. In my Through the Bible readings, this happened. No way. It's a God thing. I got four pages of notes. Those two chapters are just. Exactly. But isn't it cool that Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, we don't even know who he is gives us the explanation for what John was writing about in his gospel. No, no, exactly, exactly. So here's what Jay Vernon says. He says, Jesus says to Mary, for I'm not yet ascended to my father. This is the reason she should not hold on to him. So apparently he did ascend to his father before the appearance to the disciples in the house, but he told them to touch him. Why this difference? I believe that the Lord Jesus presented his blood at the throne of God and that his blood turned the judgment seat into the mercy seat, which it is today. That blood was shed for your sin and for my sin. I think the blood will be there throughout all eternity as the eternal testimony of the price he paid for us. Then I found another commentator, I didn't get his name, I didn't write it down, but another commentator who kind of went along with J. Vernon McGee, and he, he said this, kind of the same kind of thought. He says, Jesus as high priest after the order, Jesus as high priest after the order of Melchizedek is our intercessor, had to present the blood of atonement on the mercy seat in heaven to finalize the transaction of putting an end to the penalty of sin being death. No more bulls and goats. The Lamb of God prevailed to overcome sin, death, and the grave and presented that innocent blood as the final atonement for guilty man, so that from that day forward, whoever would call upon the name of the Lord would be saved. So um, that's why he had to ascend. Now, this could also lead to another explanation, if you think about this a little more deeply, as to why Jesus said to Mary, don't hold on to me, don't cling to me, don't touch me. Why? Because the sacrifice of the lamb had to be an unblemished, perfect lamb, right? Jesus, as the sacrifice, had to be sinless. He had to be perfect and unblemished to be the sacrifice for our sins. Maybe the fact of her touching Jesus threatened that he would become somehow ceremonially unclean by her touching him. And so he had to say to her, don't touch me like you want to touch me because I need to stay unblemished and and clean so I can ascend to my Father in heaven and present myself as the sacrifice. So if you believe that, which I do, then one of two things happened. If she did touch him and give him a bear hug or whatever, or had his feet or whatever, she had not yet gotten to that point where she had made him to be unclean. And he stopped her before anything further could happen that would make him unclean, uh, uh, you know, ritual, ritualistically. Uh, or this might more, lean more credence to those of you who believe she didn't touch him at all and that he stopped her before she could so that he could remain untouched and clean. And 
those of you who want to believe that, that's a great that's a great argument in your favor that he that she intended to touch him. She was going to touch him. She was going to do this. And before she could, Jesus said, no, because I have to ascend to my father in heaven as the sacrifice for the sins of the world. And I cannot be unclean. I have to be unblemished. So don't touch me. Don't hold me until I finish doing that. And my mind's eye, mm-hmm. I see her falling at his feet and reaching. But he tells her. Don't. Yeah. Don't do that. Well, I have another. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, you know, position. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, why in the world would he not have gone to his father to have it as soon as he could? Why would he wait to see Mary in the earth? Well, you know, I'm glad you asked that question, Kate. Because as usual, you have once again anticipated what I was going to bring up. And that is this. If you consider that to be if you consider this to be true, which I think it is, clearly, we put the, we've connected the dots, is doesn't that give you a lot more appreciation for the importance that Jesus put on Mary Magdalene? That when he really needed to go to the Father to present himself as the sacrifice for the sins of all the world for all eternity, that before he did that, he said, I need to talk to Mary first. Doesn't that give you a much greater appreciation for the fact that because she's the only when when he saw the other women later, he let them touch him. When he went to the disciples later, he let them encourage them to touch him. It's only Mary. So it's only Mary that he appeared to before he went to heaven as the sacrifice for our sins, which says, my goodness, in what you know reverence he held Mary, what what a relationship they had. That he would say, I need no knowing because as, as we read in all of the of all of the accounts, and especially here in John, she was so upset. She was so upset and so distraught. And he felt, I need to see her before this goes any farther. That four weeks. That's not at least four weeks. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. We don't even know at what point he actually transcended out of the body to, I mean, you know, toward the tomb. So if he'd done it in the, the middle of the night, or whatever it was. He had time. Yeah, had time. <laughs> I know you're going with this, Grady. He had time to do it. <laughs> well, so he must have just happened pretty much just before this, and we'll give him that. And the first thing, the first stop he had to make was to talk to Mary. So I think what, what it did for me is I kind of put the pieces together on this is it made me so much more appreciate the high esteem in which he gave Mary that this was, I think it also says how important we all are to, to Jesus. We all are important to him that he would set aside that just for the moment of being able to, to interact with her. So Okay, last thing, we, we've, got to, we've got to finish off Mary today so we can go on next week. The last thing I want to um, to look at is the very last verse here, verse 18. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them uh, that she had said these things, that he had said these things to them. So I wanted just to take a minute to... Um, Go over this word see, because have seen, because we talked about it before, how there's all these different Greek words for see or seen or seeing or whatever, and they all have different kinds of meanings. So this word that John uses here for the way that Mary 
when she says to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, the idea there is that it means not only to see with the eyes, but to see with the heart. Not only to see something that you see, but you see it and you understand it. You get it. Uh, you, uh, you, you, your mind and your heart, uh, it, it, what you're seeing gives you a message. So, for example, if I see an algebra equation on a blackboard, I see it. That's obviously an algebra equation. Do I understand it? No. Do I get it? No. Do, do, do I understand it? No, no, it means nothing to me. It's just, yeah, that's an algebra equation. That's all I can tell you. Now, my, my daughter, who's a math teacher, would have a whole different appreciation. She, she, she'd, she'd get that, that uh, thing. But if when my grandchildren were babies and I saw my daughter holding a newborn baby, her baby, my granddaughter, granddaughter or grandson, and I saw her holding that baby, when I saw her holding my granddaughter or grandson in her arms as a newborn baby, I didn't just see it. I got it. I understand it. Or like if you go to a wedding and you see a bride come down the aisle, you see it and you understand it. There's a lot more going on than just seeing a bride, right? There's a whole lot more going on. You, 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 you know, you understand, you get it. Same with a baby being held, a newborn baby. You don't, it's not just seeing it, but you're, you're actually interacting with it emotionally. And this is the idea of what Mary's saying here. I know I saw him, but I understood him, had this emotional interaction with him, and I got it. I understood it. And so that's what she wanted to let them know. And of course, as soon as she said that, they all ran to the tomb, didn't they? No, nobody ran to the tomb. Did you see that? What's wrong with these people? What's wrong with these disciples? They now had women come back and tell them that Jesus was risen. Mary comes back and says that Jesus is risen. Peter and uh, John have gone out to the tomb themselves. But these other disciples, what do they do? They say, okay, well, you know, but they don't go to the tomb. It just boggles the mind. I think Thomas gets a bad rap for being a doubter. Okay, we're going to this. We're wrapping, so we're wrapping up today the, uh, the morning of resurrection morning. We've now finished all four accounts of the gospel writers. So I want to just take a minute to kind of remind you of a quick thing for each of them because they all had a different thing that they wanted us to remember about resurrection morning. So in Matthew's account, he wanted us to remember about the guard and the Roman guards, and the lies that the Roman guards and the religious leaders came up with, the lie about what happened to Jesus. So Matthew was able to give that. It was important to Matthew because Matthew had been a tax collector. He was familiar with the Romans. He was familiar with the Romans' guards and soldiers. That was a world he was familiar with. So when he wrote about his account, he wanted us to know about the Romans, the Roman guards, and the lie. Uh, Mark, if you remember, he wanted us to remember Peter. Remember, he said, go and tell my disciples and Peter, because Peter had been his mentor. Peter had been his friend. And he wanted us to know that in spite of what Peter did in denying Jesus three times, an awful, terrible, awful thing, it did not disqualify him from being a part of the group and from serving the Lord uh, in the future. And then Luke, if you remember what Luke did in his, a lot of what Luke said was, Luke used the word other a lot. He said, it was these women and other. 
women. It was the, they came out, it was these followers and disciples and other disciples and followers. And so what Luke wanted us to know was that everything that happened on resurrection morning was bigger than what we think about. It wasn't just Mary and those three or four women whose names we have. It, there were there were there were others. It wasn't just the disciples that were hearing this news, but there were others. And he wants us to know that everything that happened was really bigger than what we might picture in our minds. And he next week will go. We'll go back to Luke, and we'll say he's the one that gave us the story about the two on the road to Emmaus. Why? Because Luke wants us to know it was bigger than just resurrection morning. It was bigger than just what happened at the tomb that morning. That later in the day, these two people were going on their way to Emmaus, and Jesus appeared to them. So the whole thing is bigger than. Uh, and also, what he's doing is he's taking it out of Jerusalem proper into. The rest of the world, and he wants us to see us and, and and see that and know that. And then finally, here in John, what John gives us is Mary Magdalene and her account, and he's the one that goes into great depth about what happened with Mary Magdalene. Because why? Because there was some thing about Mary Magdalene that John appreciated. I think that we talked about before we started this is that John saw a lot of himself. In Mary, John says, "I'm the, the 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 disciple that Jesus loved," and uh, and I think that was a reflection of his little special love for Jesus. And I think he saw the same kind of relationship that Mary had as one of the women for the special love relationship, this love that she had for Jesus and Jesus had for her, and and they were kind of like you know soulmates in a way. So he wants us to know about Mary Magdalene. So so that's what we've been doing for the last how long, Chuck? Now five months. <laughs> but I think you can say you've we've never been through the resurrection morning like we have this the last five months. So that's been fun, fun for me, and hopefully fun for you. Oh yeah, I wanted to give this to you. Um, one just just two minutes is Jesus says to Mary, "Go and tell," and that was another thing I was going to bring up is go and tell that this is something Jesus said over and over again. He said to the women uh, who were at the tomb, go and tell. He says to Mary Magdalene, go and tell. He tells the disciples, the Great Commission, go and tell. And what they're going and telling is basically, the, the, the instruction isn't so much go and tell about my miracles, go and tell about my preaching, go and, go and tell about my birth even. What he's saying is specifically, go and tell that I'm alive. Go and tell that I'm resurrected. Go and tell that the tomb couldn't hold me. Go and tell that I've overcome death and the sting of death. Go and tell this good news. Because my birth isn't the good news. It is good news. You can't have the death. But the good news is the death and the resurrection. Go and tell this. This is what you go and tell. And um, as I was reading through many years ago, the uh, devotional called My Utmost for His Highest by Oswald Chambers. Oswald Chambers says several times in his devotional, because Oswald Chambers was a preacher. And actually, his, that devotional came from his wife putting together devotional thoughts from his sermons that he preached. And uh, he says many times in, his, in that devotional, in his sermons, that any preacher today who preaches, every single sermon should talk about the cross and the resurrection. Every single one. And I read that as a pastor, and I thought, I'm not doing that. And so from that point on, I started to try to find ways, no matter what I was preaching about, no matter what passage I was preaching, I tried to ask myself, how does the cross fit into this? How does the resurrection fit into this? Because this is what Jesus had going hell about. So to have a to have a sermon without the cross, you know, but although Chambers says it doesn't get its full power. The full power of preaching and teaching comes from the cross. 
I read somewhere that Billy Graham went through something like that early on. Really? Somebody approached him and said, you're not preaching the cross. Made a difference, didn't it? Yes. So uh, the last thing I'll end on this, uh, David Limbaugh, Rush Limbaugh's brother, actually, who has written many books, and this is from a book that he wrote called Jesus is Risen. And this is what David Limbaugh says. He says, while Christianity would be pure myth without the resurrection, it is irresistible truth because of it. This is why Peter, Paul, and the other apostles forever highlight the resurrection. So good enough for them, good enough for us, right? (laughs) All right, that's all I have. That concludes this episode of Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study. I pray that you've learned something new about the Lord today, and He's given you some new insight into who He is and how much He loves you. Remember, the eternal God is our refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. May in that refuge today and those everlasting arms, you find the provision that you need, the protection that you need, the power that you need, and through those, the peace that you need. Remember, he said, my peace I give you, peace be with you. Shalom.